It's great to be here. What a privilege to be able to share uh, for our piece of Passover. And the theme for this year is about the power of the blood of the Lamb, amen. And I believe that this is a very important and uh, foundational topic for us because there are certain truths we will never graduate from, amen. There are doctrines that are constant to our faith and the power of the blood of Jesus is one of them. And we, we are going to talk about only by His blood. So if you have your Bibles, can we turn together to Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 9. And it says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And today I would like to focus on this important scripture and dovetail into three important insights as we remember the feast of Passover. I will talk about the Lamb of God, I will talk about the wrath that was satisfied, and I will talk about the significance of the blood of the Lamb. And we know that Jesus was crucified during Passover and that as a Jew, he had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. But is it just a coincidence? Did Jesus just happen to die during Passover? And the biblical answer is no. Because the reason he came to Jerusalem that final time wasn't just to celebrate the feast with the disciples, but to become our Passover, amen? As the Apostle Paul says it clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Amen? But what does that really mean? To see the picture more clearly, we need to begin at Exodus chapter 12, where the first Passover began. And the setting is Egypt, if you can imagine with me. Use your sanctified imagination, all right? And the mood is chaotic. Um, Egypt had just been devastated by a series of knife plagues. And it wasn't just a string of bad luck. It wasn't just, wow, swear, because God is judging Egypt. But there's one last plague, the most severe of all. And with most of the previous plagues, Israel had been exempted. Their cattle did not die. Their land did not turn dark. Um, their crops were not hit on. Um, they haven't done anything to avoid these plagues. There was no defense by the children of Israel. God, in His mercy, simply directed His judgment away from them. But the final 10 plagues will be different. God will be aiming at everyone at this time. And apart from some unforeseen provision, God is going to strike down all the firstborn in Egypt, including the firstborn of Israel. And the message of the 10th plague is that God is holy and just. But the message of Passover is that God is also merciful. Amen? On that first Passover, God devised a way in which He could be both just and merciful at the same time. And we might call it salvation through substitution because God's provision was simple. Take a lamb, a mature male. He has to be about one year old without blemish. Um, they were told to examine it for four days to ensure that there are no blemishes, there's no flaw in it. And if you realize uh, from the Gospels that Christ, our Passover lamb, was also inspected by four people, Annas, Caiaphas, Herod, and Pilate, and according to the scriptures, they say they could not find any legitimate fault with him. But back to the story, back to Exodus, that finally on the 14th day of the month, God says, kill that lamb. Then apply its blood on your doorpost, and when God sees the blood, he will pass over you. 
That's the meaning. And some people say that we celebrate Passover because the angel of death passed over the house of Israel. Not really, but because Israel obeyed and placed blood over their doorposts, God himself passed over their house. God covered their house. He was invited in. It was a welcome invitation to the Lord to cover their homes. It was not just a narrow escape, amen? And God spares Israel's sons, not because they are better than Egypt's sons, but because a spotless lamb died in their place and his blood covers their doors, amen? And according to New Testament uh, scripture, the message of Passover is also what we know as the message of Good Friday. And that's why um, we have Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. And the setting is this, that Moses approached Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he says that our God has deemed that this is the right time. You must let our people go. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, asked this question, who is your Lord that I should obey him? And what he's saying that everybody have their own faith, everybody have their own religions and their own belief, but who is your God? What's so unique about your God? What's so unique about your faith that I, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, have to embrace it? And there's probably no better answer to that question than what we just read about the Passover. Because for those faiths that accept the biblical vision of ultimate spiritual reality, that is the heart of it. Because for the Jews, the Passover meal is the central thing that makes them who they are. Amen? For us believers, a revised Passover meal the Lord's Supper is the central act of Christian worship. In other words, when Pharaoh asked the question, what makes your faith so unique? Here it is. Because at the center of our faith is the bloody death of an innocent lamb. Because other faiths are saying, if you do this, you can make your way to paradise. If you do a series of good works, you can come to a place of safety. But we believers believe in something entirely different, something extreme, something counter-cultural. And to the world, it seems a bit foolish. We believe that the blood is everything. Amen? And on that very night, in every single house in Egypt, it was either a dead son or a dead lamb. It was one or the other. In other words, the lamb got what the firstborn son deserved. The lamb paid the debt so that the firstborn did not have to pay the debt for the family. Every firstborn son in every Hebrew home, probably on that very night, looked at the table, looked at the lamb, looked at the blood on the doorpost, and knew that the reason I'm still alive, the reason I'm not dead, is because of the blood of the lamb. And Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, also celebrates this Passover meal. They all got together, he and the disciples got together for the Passover. And when Jesus stands up, I believe there must be two enormous shocks for the, for the disciples, right? First, because of what he said. When Jesus stands up to speak, everyone is saying, okay, he's in the place of the Father, he's taking the place of the presider, okay? Because at the Passover meal, there is a presider and his job is to stand up and to explain the meal. So Jesus gets up. And what did the disciples expect to hear him say? They expect to hear me say that this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so that we could be free. It's the traditional prayer that kicks off the Passover Seder. But instead, he gets up and he says, this is my body. The bread is my body. And what he's saying is, this is the bread of my affliction that I'm going to suffer to give you the ultimate freedom. Freedom not just from physical and political bondage, but from sin and death itself. Amen? 
And, and here's the second shock. Because when he stood up, the disciples looked down at a table, and there are three consistent things that you have at a Passover meal. I hope I'm not wrong. If I'm wrong, uh, Siu Fong will message me at the end, but it's okay. Um, first, you have the unleavened bread, okay? And there's Jesus himself breaking the bread. You have the four cups of wine, and that's Jesus Christ pouring out the cup. Then there's the lamb. But if you look at the Gospels, the Scripture, as shown in the New Testament, on that very night, there's no reference to a lamb. There's no lamb. And they're probably thinking, what kind of Passover is this? There's no lamb on the table. Do you know why? Because the lamb was at the table. The lamb was deliberately removed from the Passover meal because Jesus was saying that tonight, I'm the lamb. Tonight, I'm giving you the ultimate salvation that even Moses understood what the Passover was pointing to. Amen? Let's go back to our main text. It says that since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, by him, from the wrath of God. I want to talk a bit about the wrath of God. And um, today, Christians all around the world uh, celebrate Maundy Thursday. And um, this is the very day, according to the calendar, that Jesus was at the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, I want to read to you Matthew chapter 26, starting from verse 36 to 39. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And let me just slowly try to get across to you the immensity of what Christ went through. Okay? Because up to this point in the Gospels, Jesus had been completely in control. Nothing seems to have faced him or shocked him so far. Jesus always knows what's going on. He's always prepared. He's always so calm and chill. But all of a sudden, we come to this portion and we read that he began to be deeply distressed. Why was this? Jesus was facing something beyond physical torment, even beyond physical death. In verse 37, some scriptures literally say that he was walking along and then suddenly sorrow came upon him. It was like he was walking with his disciples, then he was staggered, okay, because of the immensity of the sorrow that came upon his heart. And to describe it, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I'm, sometimes I begin to think, like, why did Jesus respond like this? Because if you read from church history and even the book of Acts, there are so many people who walk to their deaths smiling, right? They were persecuted, they were killed, they, they were martyred, but they, they smiled to their deaths. Could it be that Jesus was weaker than them? He was scared? Could not be, right? That would be blasphemy. But let's look at this po the portion of scriptures, okay? What he means by this is I'm being crushed by this pain and the horror that has come down on me. I feel like it's going to destroy me right at this very spot. And Jesus is not a man prone to exaggeration, right? If we know the gospel, if we know our Lord. And the book of Luke tells us one more thing that we are not told in Matthew. It says that as he was talking to them, as he was praying, uh, drops of sweat turned into blood, and which is rare but not impossible for a person who is in a state of shock 
So what we have from the scriptures is Jesus is reeling in shock and anguish, and we have Jesus three times saying, is there any way out of this? Something has put Christ into a virtual state of shock. What is it? It's something that he has mentioned over and over again. It's the cup. It's the cup. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Is there any way out of this cup? And what's that? Okay. If you compare with the Old Testament using scripture to interpret scripture, the cup meant God's divine wrath on all wrongdoing. It meant God's punishment and justice coming down on all sin. In Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 33, Ezekiel was saying to some people, you shall drink the cup of ruin and desolation and tear your breast. On or Isaiah chapter 34, it says, you will drink the cup of his fury and you will stagger. And this was the cup of the, the wrath of God that was coming down. And this is what Jesus was facing. And the cup is the divine, infinite wrath of God that human sin deserves. It's about to come down on Jesus and he's beginning to have a foretaste of it. He's beginning to just have a sip of what's going to happen on the cross. And it was not the pain of torture that caused such sorrow, but for the first time in his life, for the first time in the history of the universe, the father would pour his wrath on the son. And the son would feel the father turning away from him. And Jesus was crying, Lord, is, Father, is there any other way? I can take the wrath of the Romans. I can take the wrath of the Sahedrin leaders. But do I really have to be exposed to the wrath of the father against your people? But Jesus was not finished. He prayed, nevertheless, I'm so glad he prayed this, all right? If not, we all GG. <laughs> He said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And here is what gives us hope, amen? And Jesus is actually not taking circumstances into his own hands. In the end, he's obeying. He's relinquishing control over his circumstances and submitting his desires to the will of the Father. He says, not as I will, but what you will. Yes, he's wrestling, but he's obeying in love. Why? Because as horrifying as the cup is, he knows that his immediate desire to be spared must bow before the Father's ultimate one, which is to spare us. And he is the innocent lamb who spilled blood for us. Why? Because of the Father's love for us. Amen? Because if he had refused to drink that cup, there would be no salvation for us. All that will be left for us is wrath, and we would have to drink the cup for ourselves. Christ walked into the courtroom. He stood between the judge and the guilty person and said, I will serve that sentence. And Christ served the complete sentence of just wrath that I deserve. Amen? And those who are in Christ right now, you need to know this, okay? That you will never know the wrath of God because of what Christ has done. Because he has drank the cup of wrath and he has spilled his blood. That we are never under wrath but under the mercies of God. Which is why we must always make much of the blood of the Lamb, amen? And, and there is nothing that comes remotely close to the blood of Jesus. He has the power to do one thing that nothing else can. He has the power to wash away our sins. And the human heart has a terminal disease that cannot be enlightened, that cannot be reformed. It needs to be washed from crippling sin. And the only thing that is powerful enough to do that is the blood of Jesus. And when we plead the blood of Jesus, you have to know this, that we touch the very core and heart of the Father. 
Because to the Father, the blood is personal. And there's nothing more powerful than placing our faith in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Now, if we can understand how powerful the blood of Jesus is, then I think we will have many more victories in our lives because the blood of Jesus is not just there to wash away our sins, but it gives us the power to live victorious life. It also devastates the demonic realm, amen? Because the blood has a voice. The blood has a voice, amen? In Genesis chapter 4, God says to Cain, hey, where's your brother? And the smart elect responds, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And ignoring this evasion, God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. In those words, he reveals three of the most profound truths embedded in the fabric of the universe. First, blood has a voice, blood cries out to God, and blood is heard from heaven. So to speak, all right, if I can say so, that blood has taken the microphone and is not letting go and every word will be heard by God Almighty. And here in this murderous scene where the rebel lives and the righteous dies, it seems like this is like an immense injustice. Cain is driven out, yes. He becomes a vagrant. He becomes a wanderer, yes. But he also becomes, in the strangest of surprises, a protected man. He's marked with a divine sign that shields him. He who deserved the worst, this first murderer is still shown grace. Do you, do you realize it? And how incredibly, unbelievably unexpected is that? But perhaps not so crazy after all, because this same God who heard Abel's blood crying had already in the mystery of mysteries heard the blood of the lamb crying out who was slain from the foundation of the earth. And as Hebrews beautifully says that the blood speaks much better things than the blood of Abel, amen? It speaks about the blood of redemption. The blood of Jesus will be shed. And like Abel, he too was a brother. He too was a shepherd. He too whose sacrifice was accepted. And his blood too has a voice. But not only that, his voice is more powerful. It cries out to God and it too is heard from heaven. And when Christ's blood takes the microphone, every square inch of the universe, every darkened, spot in hell, every heavenly realm, shut up to listen. When Christ's blood takes the microphone, when he speaks, the statement that it becomes a reality is the cry, Father, forgive them. Which is why we must always testify of the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Do you know when the blood was slain on the Passover night, the blood was collected in a basin? We do know this, right? But the blood in the basin could not protect a single person. It has to be sprinkled on the lintel and the doorpost of every Jewish home. And the people had only one permitted instrument, a little common plant that grew throughout the Middle East called the hyssop. It's a hyssop or hyssop? Hyssop. They had to dip the hyssop in the basin of blood and then sprinkle it on the doorpost and lintel. And hyssop was a baby bushy plant with numerous small flowers in bunches. And now, his thought represents cleansing. We know this from scripture. It also represents the word of our testimony. When we testify what the word of God says, that the blood of Jesus has done for us, we are using his thought to sprinkle the blood, amen? amen? And here's what you must say, that devil, enemy, the Bible says that the blood of Jesus has redeemed me. Now take your hands off me and my family. 
when the sins of the past comes back to accuse you, confess the blood and the blood will cleanse your conscience, amen? It's the same thing as, as sprinkling the blood on the doorpost of your heart because the more we confess the blood, it becomes more effective in our lives. When an evil thought comes to your mind, say again, Father, I apply the blood of Jesus over my mind because there's more power in one drop of the blood than there is the entire kingdom of the enemy. So what must we do? Learn to apply the blood regularly. When the blood is applied, the enemy cannot cross the bloodline. Understand that by the blood, you have been redeemed, forgiven, cleansed, and sanctified. And Revelation chapter 13 says that we overcome the accuser as we apply the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And as often as you can, apply, testify, confess the blood over your life, your family, and your tribe, because the blood will never lose its power. And the blood has much greater voice, amen? And when trials come, when hardships come, we know, guess what? We are not under wrath. And we declare Romans chapter 5 verse 9, I'm safe from God's wrath because of the blood. When sickness comes and the enemy tries to stop you from praying, declare 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, by his blood, my healing is secured. When you have fallen, perhaps you have stumbled and guilt and shame comes, declare Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, that the blood silences the accuser of the brethren. And it's the blood of Jesus that saves our family, amen. Um, I remember about one or two years before I came to Coniston, I was living a bad sleet in life. And um, I think not for very long, but probably one to two years. And then, uh, <laughs> why, why, funny? <laughs> because it's very long that I'll be more trained than this. <laughs> but something happened and um, I came to Coniston and I really felt the grace of God and I rededicated myself to the Lord. And what I didn't realize is my parents were overseas and my, blood, my, blood, my mom has been praying for me every day that I will go back to the Lord. Mothers, do not discount your prayer. Mothers and fathers' prayers are very important, amen? And when she came, when they came back from overseas, um, this is what she told me. She said, every day, I plead the blood of Jesus over your life. I plead the blood of Jesus over your life. Amen? For those of you who have been praying for your family members, your loved ones for a long time, perhaps they have walked away from the faith, plead the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Because of the blood of Christ, we are under mercy, and when we persevere, we are transformed, we become the trophies of the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, I love this, okay? It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the rich, riches of God's grace. I'm so sorry. And this is saying that the greatest manifestation of the glory of God is to transform lives of people he has redeemed. I'll put it another way, okay? It says that he has redeemed you to the praise of his glorious grace. That means you are the greatest evidence of the glory of God in the universe. Do you realize that? And this is not the only place that says that because Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 says that we have become a display case for the glory and the grace of God. And the Angels long to look at the wisdom of God manifested in the church. And let me be personal that sometimes I look at my cell group or look at the congregation and sometimes I think, wow, what a trophy of grace they are. Because I am privy to 
what they've gone through. I've seen their trials, their bondages. I've seen their past. And the Bible says that ultimately, the transformed lives of the people that, who have been redeemed are the greatest evidences of the glory of God in this universe. Angels long to look at it. They're peering down to look at the trophies of the grace of God because they are so amazed at what the blood of Christ has done in you, to you, and through you, amen? And there's nothing like a redeemed man and woman, and there's nothing like a person who knows the power of the blood of the Lamb. I'm gonna end very soon, um, but I wanna conclude with, uh, this is something of what I've shared. Uh, we are no longer under wrath. The blood speaks of much greater things and silences the accuser, and we can live transformed lives because of the blood. I was reading an article of Billy Graham recently, and he tells about the fact that in 1955, he was invited to speak at Cambridge University to the students at Great St. Mary's Hall. And he came up to the public, okay, that uh, this American preacher was going to be preaching and speaking. And in August, just before he went, there were letters sent to the Times of London, angry letters, right? In other words, the culture was so upset that this fundamentalist Baptist American preacher was going to come and speak to the best and the brightest, the elite of the elite, about a primitive kind of religion because he was known for speaking about the blood, about the atonement, about the horrors of hell. And the letter said something like, now we believe that religion is good in its place. It has its place, but we've gotten past that. Those Americans, they are so conservative, they are so fundamentalist. And uh, to be honest, the letters affected Billy Graham a bit. He felt like everybody was saying that you are just a country bumpkin and you're coming and talking to our students at Cambridge. So for the very first three nights that he was there, he tried very hard to quote the intellectuals, he tried to quote the scholars, and he fell flat on his face. There was no anointing, there was no power, and after that, he repented, he got down on his knees and said something like this, like, my last talk is tonight, and I'm going to forget about it. I'm going to preach nothing but the cross and the blood of Jesus. And there was another man who remembers being there, and he said this, okay? He said, I will never forget that night. It was uh, in a totally packed place. I was there. I was sitting on the floor at Great St. Mary's with the prof professor of divinity sitting on one side of me and the chaplain of the college seated on the other side of me. And both of these were good men, but they were completely against the idea that we needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. And dear Billy Graham got up that very night and he began at Genesis and went right through the entire Bible talking about every single sacrifices in it. And he was saying that the blood was flowing all over the great hall. He would keep talking about the blood, the blood, the blood, nothing but the blood for 45 minutes. Both my neighbors were horribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. They were feeling very smug, knowing that no bright, sophisticated, young British person is going to listen to any of this stuff. It was everything they they disliked, they disdained, they, they dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stayed to commit their life to Christ because there's power in the blood. Amen? Without the blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And before I ask Pastor Tim to lead us in a time of communion, I just want 
to share one last thing. Um, if you can just picture with me that in the temple in the olden days, there was an inner place um, where we call it the Holy of Holies. And once a year, um, one holy man could minister unto the Lord before the Shekinah flame of the Lord. Just one man, once a year. And just right outside was a place where the priest could minister. And just right outside was where the Levites could minister. And right outside, it was where the sons of Israel could minister. And right outside was where the daughters of Israel could minister. And way, way, way far at the court of the Gentiles were people like you and me. We have come because perhaps we have heard about Yahweh. We've longed to love Him. We want to hear about Him. Perhaps we heard rumors about Him and something in our hearts knowing that this is true. So we come. We want to worship Yahweh, but that was the only place that we could worship. No step closer. Way, way far off at the call of the Gentiles. But he died on the cross. By his blood, the veil was torn. And Hebrews said that with bold confidence, all of us, we can go right in because of a new and living way has been made open for us. We can minister to him in spirit and in truth. Let's rise to our feet, if I can. If I can take just about two to three minutes, I'm, I'm just reminded of what my mom prayed for me. And this weekend is our Plus One campaign. And we were talking about the Red Thai Society. Um, the Red Thai signifies the blood of Jesus. And what the entire script is talking about is that there's no way you can enter inside except by the blood of Jesus, amen. And some of you, perhaps you've been praying for your loved ones and your family members for very long, but the scripture says there will be a lamb per household. Pastor Young preached that your loved ones, your family members, they shall serve the Lord. And right now, let's, if you're just contending for someone you've been praying for, Let's pray that God will bring them in. Just lift up your hands. Father, we come before you right now tonight. We make much of the blood of Jesus. Lord, we believe that this is the year of salvation. This is the year that you will break down the walls of hostility. This is the year that our family members and our loved ones will be saved, Lord. Those who have not heard about you, those who have walked with you but turned aside, Lord, bring them back in the name of Jesus. The burnt stones will come back in the name of Jesus. We make much over the blood of the Lamb. We make much over the blood of Jesus. Lord, we pray they will never be under wrath but be under the mercies of God. Lord, we ask you to bring them in. Your word promises a lamp, a household. And Lord, for those coming this weekend, our friends, our loved ones, Lord, when they come into this place, when they hear uh, the preaching of the word, a simple word, their eyes will be open. Their eyes will be open. Their hearts will be strangely warm. They will know there's nothing but the blood of the Lamb. Bring them in, Lord. We bless you. We honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. just listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. 
Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.